This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening. Good evening out there. Or good morning to you. Or good day to you if you're listening on the web. After the fact. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's... More than radio, it's listener-sponsored community radio, KOPN 89.5 FM, serving Columbia and lots of areas around mid-Missouri here. All right, as I said, this is Mike, 
and it's Radio Orlick Monday night, 11 till 2, as always. Big thank you to Debbie Johnson, another wonderful episode of Free Range Radio Theater. You can hear that program every Monday before my show from 10 o'clock until 11 o'clock, and Debbie does lots of uh, interesting, different, uh, cool things every week. She does a lot of sci-fi uh, stuff, and uh, tonight a little bit of a departure for her. Uh, doing some classic American literature. But anyway, great stuff on Free Range Radio Theater, as always. And thanks to Debbie for the wonderful setup for this show, as always. I'm very pleased to be uh, on this Monday night spot now, following Deb's show. So, okay, uh, tonight uh, we got sort of an Earth Day special thing going on tonight. I've got Stephen Herod Buner. And uh, Stephen is a healer. He's a botanist. He's sort of a knower of nature and an award-winning author of many books, two of which we discussed a couple of weeks ago when I spoke with him and both of which I'll be giving away sometime later tonight. Uh, those books are The Lost Language of Plants and The Secret Teachings of Plants, uh, sort of a combinatory pair of books that really go well together and haven't decided if I'm going to give them away together, if I'll give them away separately. But at any rate, uh, once we get into that interview with Stephen Buhner, uh, we'll be giving away a couple of those uh, books of his. And uh, they're both wonderful. I've read them both. And uh, um, if you have an opportunity, if you're listening and you're interested in this sort of stuff, intelligence in nature and uh, uh, the language of the green world and... Uh, indigenous cultures and shamanism and all this sort of stuff, uh, then Stephen's work is wonderful for you, and you might want to stick around and try to get a hold of one of those books, okay? All right. Uh, I also have sort of a uh, another treat for you here. There's some music, some wonderful new music, actually, from a couple of guys who have been trained and uh, have been collaborating with uh, the famed Don Augustino, a, a legendary healer and shaman in Peru. And they call themselves Yachai. And uh, I'll be playing some of their music along with a short interview that I did with them. And that's coming up in just, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes or so, okay? All right, uh, last week we had Dr. Terry Grossman. Uh, thanks to Dr. Grossman. had a wonderful, uh, in, uh, interesting discussion with him. My gosh, uh, incredible. Uh, incredible. The stuff that, uh, that appears to be just over the horizon. And uh, lots of positive feedback. So I'm glad y'all enjoyed that show. And, uh, yeah, like I say, wild, wild stuff coming in, in very short order to a planet near you. And, yeah, uh, there were a bunch of stories I wanted to cover tonight, but I don't have a whole lot of time. So um, a couple of them came from uh, Dr. Grossman and, uh, and um, uh, Ray Kurzweil's website. You can go over there and check it out at KurzweilAI.net. That's K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N-E-N
uh, space weather coming up in just a few minutes. And uh, let me give out contact information. My email address, as always, is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. And uh, you can always reach me over the web at www.radioorbit, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. That's radioorbit.com. And here in the station uh, at the studio, or in the studio at the station, I might say, uh, the number is 573-874-5676. You can call me here once we get these interviews rolling. Uh, and the uh, 800 number, if you're outside of the 573 area code, is 1-800-895-5676. Okay, so 573-874-5676 uh, or 1-800-895-5676. Just as a note, I've had a couple people call me uh, actually send me emails over the last week asking for copies of old programs uh, that they've uh, uh, been interested in. Um, as long as I can handle it, as long as the as long as there's not as long as the show's not very popular, uh, and uh, I don't have a whole lot to do, I'd be glad to do that for anybody who'd like a copy of an old program. Uh, just let me know what it is, and um, I'll try to get it on disc for you, MP3, something like that, and get it to you somehow. So. I'd be glad to do that. I appreciate uh, people interested in this stuff and the information that I put out here I, I like to think is important and um, I'd like to see people pull it up from the past as well as listen to it real time in the present. Okay. All right, let's talk uh, real quick about some upcoming guests and uh, then we'll get on to this uh, sort of music piece and interview that I did with this with this interesting couple of guys named Yachai. Okay, um... Tonight, Stephen Herod Buner, as I mentioned, next week. I think I'm going to do an open line show next week. I'm not sure, but haven't had a chance to sort of just uh, uh, kick back and see what's on your minds lately. Had a lot of uh, uh, interviews scheduled over the last four or five weeks. So we'll probably do that next week, probably just take the night and uh, read some news and talk on the telephone. Maybe we'll get Kent uh, Stedman on the phone for a few minutes, see what's going on in his neck of the woods. Actually, he may be in Hawaii right now, but that's all right. We'll talk to him in Hawaii if he is. Um, so anyway, that's what we'll do next week. If you've got anything you want to talk to me about, if you have anything um, uh, important or if you have anything not important or if you have any ideas for future programs or just discussion that you might want to have, uh, hold on to that, and we'll talk about them next week, okay? And uh, you can call in, and we'll talk about it on the air. Okay, uh, what's next? Um Dr. Barbara Tedlock, the chair of the uh, anthropology department at the State University of New, uh, New York in Buffalo, is going to be moving through town here in a couple of weeks. We had originally thought that May 9th was going to be the day that she was going to be here, but it may be the 16th of May. Not sure exactly. Uh, but anyway, sometime in the next two or three weeks, I'm going to have her live with me in the studio here. And Barbara is a, uh, not only is she a doctor of anthropology, uh, she's also an initiated shaman, and uh, she's written a wonderful book that's called Woman in the Shaman's Body, Restoring the Feminine in Religion and Medicine. And it's a book that's way overdue, and it uh, it shatters some of these age-old myths that uh, shamanism was primarily uh, a masculine profession. Uh, it wasn't, and uh, women had a big part in uh, in this historical uh, in this tremendously historically relevant topic of shamanism. So 
Anyway, if you're a woman or if you know a woman, I uh, urge all of the girls out there to listen to that show that's going to be coming up in a few weeks with Barbara Tedlock, Dr. Barbara Tedlock. I think you'll really enjoy it, and I think it'll really uh, uh, maybe show you some things that you didn't know about your own history. Okay, um, I have another really interesting guy who's going to be on the air in a few weeks, and it'll be a live show, and his name is Ed Edwards, and I call him Shoe, or I and lots of other people call him Shoe. Anyway, Shu is, uh, well, not the most easy person to describe. Uh, he sort of lives in the mountains in, in Georgia, and he's uh, not the most accessible fella. But the best description I have of Shu would be for those people who have seen the movie Phenomenon. It was a movie that was released a number of years ago, and it starred John Travolta. And uh, it was about this guy who got whacked by lightning, and after he got hit by lightning, he was able to do all these astounding things. Well, this is sort of a shoe story, although he didn't particularly get hit by lightning. I actually think he's like from another planet or something. Uh, but anyway, shoe is capable of doing amazing things. And uh, what we're going to do is just have a, sh have a show with shoe on the air, and we're going to let him do amazing things. And the way he's going to do that is uh, going to be through audience participation. So the show is really going to suck if you guys uh, don't call in and ask him questions and uh, participate in this whole project. So that's coming up, and I hope uh, uh, I'm going to give it a few weeks uh, and talk about it a few weeks so people get uh, familiar with the idea and you'll be ready and listening and uh, uh, able to call in the night that she's on the air. But he, he has this amazing ability... Um, well, uh, he sort of ha sort of has this ability to heal in uh, in a certain sense, and many people have responded to uh, what he's been able to do. And he doesn't have to be in your presence; he can do it right over the over the telephone, over the airwaves, over the over the radio. It's very strange, and um, this is difficult for me to talk about because it's very esoteric. It has nothing to do with science. I have no way to prove any of this, and I'm and I'm really not trying to prove it. And in fact, uh, if you want to prove it wrong, well, that's fine. Just call in that night as well, and uh, you can talk to Shu about uh, what a what a charlatan he is, if that's uh, if that's the way you take this stuff. But at any rate, uh, Shu's a really interesting guy, and he's capable, at least in my opinion, of doing some really strange things that are very difficult for me, at least, to uh, to explain. Uh, so that will be, if nothing else, an interesting show, and that'll be coming up probably sometime in the middle of May, no later than the end of May. Okay. And uh, uh, John Lash, of course. We've been talking about John Lash for a few weeks. He'll be coming up. Uh, his uh, uh, associate, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, uh, Timothy Leary's former wife, will be on the air sometime uh, independently of John, but she'll be on the air in the next uh, month or two here. And uh, I've got another real interesting interview set up with a gentleman whose name is Nassim Haramain, and he runs an, uh, an operation called The Resonance Project. And... Um, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it right now because I'm not that familiar with his work. But anyway, another real interesting guy who has a lot of very cool things to say. So we'll have him on the air again in the next uh, next uh, month or two, all right? Okay, uh, space weather. Let's do this real fast. Do we have time for some music or not? It is about 20 after... Well, i tell you what. Let's do space weather. No, let's not. 
Um, let's do space weather right after this, uh, right after this break here, okay? And then we'll come back and do that. And then we've got an interview with the guys from Yachai and some music, uh, that we did along with that. And then we've got Stephen Herod Buner. So a packed evening tonight on Radio Orbit. But let's get things going here with, uh, uh, a little bit of music. I said it was an Earth Day special, and uh, I'll keep true to my word here, and we'll start things out with a little bit of music from Drama Rama. This is from about uh, 1992. It's called What Are We Going to Do? And we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. This is Mike. Happy Earth Day, and, uh, and a happy day to all of you out there. April 21st, and everybody knows today is Earth Day. Merry Christmas, happy birthday to Evers, being born. And now I'm trying hard to think of something meaningful and worthy, kind of earthy, to make everybody ask themselves just what are you doing here? What are we doing to her? I don't know.
And everybody knows tomorrow's Earth Day. Merry Christmas, happy birthday to whoever's being. All right, that's uh, Drama Rama from uh, actually from a compilation called Studio C, Volume Two, from a radio station in Boulder, Colorado, KBCO. Anyway, good stuff, and uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Let's do space weather really quick here. Uh, something kind of strange happened last night uh, around 8 o'clock um, Eastern Time over New England. A really bright green fireball sort of streaked over the entire area of New England last night, and, uh, well, what was it? I don't know. Uh, maybe a small asteroid? That's usually the way they uh, define these things. In fact, I'm reading a story here that says probably a small asteroid, sofa-sized or so, breaking up in Earth's atmosphere. Such space rocks hit Earth frequently, but they are seldom observed because they appear, for example, during the day or over the uninhabited ocean. This one, unlike most, broke up over a densely populated area during the dark of evening while many people were still awake to see it. Uh, now, again... Um, I'll point out that the way that these things are usually written, as if they are explained, but again, right at the beginning of this piece, it says, what was it? Probably a small asteroid. And the word probably, of course, is the operative word there. It means that they really don't know. Uh, at any rate, uh, contrary to some other reports, it was not one of the Lyrid meteors. The uh, Lyrid meteor shower uh, was below the horizon at the time, so it wasn't one of the Lyrids, and it was not also the Soyuz space capsule, the Russian Soyuz space capsule that was uh, uh, returning to Earth from uh, ISIS, from the International Space Station. The Soyuz came down uh, in Asia about three hours, two or three hours before that fireball appeared. So, uh, at any rate, something strange happened over New England, and uh, maybe it was a meteor, maybe an asteroid, maybe it was a unidentified flying object and of course uh, nothing really implied by those words either just unidentified and flying and an object so alright who knows uh, if you have any information on that though send it to me and I'll forward it on to the, uh, the guys over there at, uh, at the UFO reporting center in Seattle Okay, um, sunspots. Yesterday the sun was almost blank. Virtually, virtually no sunspots uh, on, the, on the face of the sun. Uh, however, coming up now over the eastern limb, there's sort of a big uh, group of sunspots, bigger than the planet Earth, as a matter of fact, that are rolling around. And uh, the sun's been pretty quiet for the last couple months, actually. If, uh, uh, if you followed the show, you know that we talk about the sun pretty often and uh, what's going on up there, although... 
Uh, toward the end of the year, things were getting pretty interesting, October, November, December. But for the last couple months, uh, since probably late January, early February, we haven't had a whole lot of activity. So at any rate, uh, that's good news, I guess. And uh, our favorite star up there in the heavens above our heads is uh, being friendly and uh, doing nothing but showering the planet with, uh, with friendly waves. Okay, so take that while it lasts. All right, there was a lunar eclipse uh, also yesterday morning, and I would also add that this was coincidental with the, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the word is. I'll use the word inauguration, even though I'm not, that, I'm not sure if that's the official word, but the inauguration of the new pope. And again, uh, I would say that these things are not coincidental. Uh, there was, a, it's actually called a penumbral lunar eclipse. It's sort of a very minor lunar eclipse. In fact, if you uh, didn't know that you were, looking at it, or if you didn't know what you were looking for, you probably wouldn't know that uh, it had occurred. But uh, uh, the view of the moon, from the other hand, uh, or the view from the moon, I should say, would have been actually quite astounding. But at any rate, uh, that, that uh, eclipse happened again yesterday morning, sort of coincidentally with the inauguration of the, of the new pope. Now, there is uh, one other thing on space weather that we talk about pretty frequently, and that's uh, potentially hazardous asteroids or Earth-crossing asteroids or comets. Regardless, any space-bearing body that may cross the orbit of the Earth is called a potentially hazardous object or an NEO, a near-Earth object. And uh, again, these are things that come very close to the planet and sometimes actually hit the planet. You never know when that's going to happen, but uh, you hope that it doesn't happen soon. Uh, regardless, uh, potentially hazardous asteroids, I don't have a whole lot to tell you about tonight, so nothing to worry about. But again, the ones we know about are never the ones to worry about. The ones that we don't know about are the ones that always sort of show up and uh, uh, give us something to think about. So, All right, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and we're going to do something here for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. I've got... Uh, an interview that I did with a couple of guys, Jeff and William, from a two-man musical outfit called Yachai. And they do some really interesting stuff, and they also have a pretty interesting look at uh, the world and life. So I did a little bit of, uh, I spent a little time with them, talking with them, and playing some music, and I'm going to share that with you guys right now, okay? And we'll come back in just a little while and do... The uh, interview with Stephen Herod Buner, author of The Lost Language of Plants and The Secret Teachings of Plants. That's coming up in just about 45 minutes or so. In the meantime, this is uh, Yachai on Radio Orbit, KOPN. Back in a little while, okay? Thanks. Oh, by the way, the number here, uh, 874-5676, if you have anything to say. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, 89.5 FM. And uh, tonight I've got a couple of... Uh, guests that are a little bit out of the norm for me. We haven't been doing this sort of thing recently, but I've got a couple of great guys from a band that call themselves Yachai, and I've got William and Jeff on the line here, and we're going to be talking a little bit about their music tonight and where they've come from and uh, how they got their inspiration, how they ever came up with uh, the music uh, that they've been performing and writing for some time now. And I actually have a copy of their most recent CD, and I'm going to be playing a number of tracks off of that uh, tonight as we talk with them. So uh, rather than me uh, describe them for you, I think we're going to bring them right on now and, uh, and just uh, get familiar ourselves. So without further delay, uh, this is Jeff and William from Yachai. How are you guys doing? 
there, Mike. Doing good, doing good. All right. Well, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for taking a little time to to spend with me and my listeners tonight. It's definitely our pleasure. This is William here, and uh, thank you very much for having us on. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And I uh, I uh, I don't do it without uh, without good feeling and intent. I really enjoyed the music. Uh, the music was something that I was uh, had not been introduced to until really recently. Somehow, in some uh, strange twist of fate, you guys. Uh, got my email address and, and, and sent me a note regarding a, uh, a past program or something that I had done. I forget exactly. And then uh, I, I think I responded, and you sent me a copy of the CD, and I was absolutely blown away. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, yeah, we um, got your email, actually, because of the work you're doing. We really appreciate it. Respect it. Um, definitely happy to hear that uh, you're enjoying the CD. Yeah, it's, this is Jeff here. It's, uh, it's kind of funny how I, I actually found your website had it bookmarked on my computer and I was I think I was telling you this in our previous conversation um, I just kind of stumbled on it and didn't remember putting it there or how it got there and I mean I, I store a lot of bookmarks as most people that spend any time on the internet do but I pretty much remember everything that I store <laughs> and I, I saw this and I was like what what is this and how did it get here but it, after looking through it it was interesting enough to, to contact you I don't know. Forgetfulness, maybe cosmic giggle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, both of those things are certainly relevant in my life. I have I have uh, a little bit of a short-term memory problem here and again, but the cosmic giggle approaches now and again as well. So what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> I know about that short-term memory thing. Oh, all right. So look, the uh, the name of the CD is called Sweet Mother Mercy, and uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that just to let people know. Uh, 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 where it's available and stuff like that, you can give out the website address. And then I think we'll we'll, we'll rewind and, and go backward in time a little bit and talk a little bit about you guys, where the music came from or where it comes from, I should say, and uh, how it was inspired and 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 what uh, what Yachai is all about. Because I know you're you're about uh, you're certainly about the music, but I think you're about a little bit more than that as well. So. Okay. Well, um, the album Sweet Mother Mercy is actually our first. Um, full album that we're releasing. Um, it's kind of been a long process, actually, of getting this album together after scrapping the, the first version of it because we weren't really happy with the direction. But um, we have a pretty vast catalog of about probably close to 80 songs. So it's, it's kind of funny that this is actually our first release. Um, and actually, you're going to be... Uh, this will be the, the radio debut. Really? All right. Well, you hear that, Radio Orbit listeners. This is a uh, this is a world premiere, apparently, on the radio, uh, and you'll be hearing tonight. Well, you know what? We are we are probably five minutes into this uh, uh, to this discussion, and I think that I would probably re be remiss if we didn't get things right off the bat with some music to begin with. So, why why don't we uh, uh, let's start with a, with with, uh, with a track off of the new CD, and then we'll come back and chat a little bit more. Um, but uh, if you guys could pick one, what would be a good one to uh, to play for the listeners uh, off the bat here? Why don't we take the first track on the album? It's called Pachamama. It's a Quechuan uh, term, language of the Incas for spirit of the earth mother. All right, let's play that, and we'll be back in just a few minutes uh, with Yachai, Jeff, and William. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Back in just a few minutes. 
so okay now that that track that was the first track on sweet mother mercy what was the name of that song again you guys Hachimama. Hachimama. what does that mean exactly in english well it means uh the earth mother but in a larger sense than just the physical body of the planet that we're walking on it uh embodies the spirit the energetic knowing of the mother the uh mother sphere that gives us all life here in this dimension um name yachai the name of the band is actually another quechuan word and it means natural wisdom it's one of the meanings um the natural wisdom refers to the earth having her own knowing having her own uh natural healing process her own way of uh doing what's right to bring balance and order same way that the uh human body is an incredible knowing computer machine mm -hmm. the uh work with music was actually born um with our work in the jungles peru now where where do you guys come from originally are you uh, are are you from the states here originally or, or or do you have a background back in central and south america or how or what what brought you to peru to begin with um well originally we're probably from some other some other planet <laughs> <laughs> but uh physically i was this is Jeff speaking i was born in san antonio down in texas okay and uh William, I was born in Dover, uh, Delaware. I agree with Jeff. It's not a problem. It was a definitely traveled here from another planet. So we, the two of us don't actually have any, uh, at least, you know, recent blood ancestry down in South America. Our connection to South America really just comes from our uh, spirit connection with our teacher, Don Augustine. Right. We both have been working with for quite close to 10 years now. Um, first independent. We actually met each of us each one of us met Don Augustine independent of the other. Really? First and it was uh, probably about 3 3 years a little over 3 years ago. And 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 for and for the listeners who is Don Augustine exactly? Uh, who is that's a whole other show. That's a great <laughs> question. Don Augustine is the answer. Is uh he, well he's a shaman in Peru, an ayahuasquero. Um he works among other many, many, many plants. He works with uh the ayahuasca. Mm hmm Which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Anisteriopsis copy. Yep. Yeah. And uh he's probably one of the more known um outside of the country outside of Peru is probably one of the more known shaman around the planet. He's actually not so much now, but he's actually traveled uh, to many different countries and done ceremonies in different countries, taking the medicine out of the jungle to people that mm. uh, may not have the opportunity to make it down there. And there's been books written about him, and there's sure. been uh, I, actually me and uh, the person that originally introduced me to him, who was. Uh, my meditation teacher at the time, uh, me and him produced a CD of his music that came out about five years ago. Um, there's a lot of stuff out about him, but he's really amazing, amazing man as far as his, um, not only his shamanic and healing abilities, but just his scope of vision in terms of uh, creating um, commerce and projects 
for his people. He's got a, his most recent project is uh, an artistic school that he's created in his uh, home village. Interesting. And so he's obviously obviously been an influence in the music as well. Oh, yeah. Um, probably, I would say, one one of the main influences. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a, really, he's a maestro, incredible musician. He plays, he sings, uh, plays drums, variety of percussion instruments, uh, hand flute, harmonica, and uh, instrument that he invented called the Avco Delta Winde, which huh. is... Uh, really interesting instrument. It's a boat instrument that you uh, strum and control the harmonics with your mouth. Really? And I've, I've worked with other Iowa Scarrows over the years down there, and I mean, I've been fortunate to work with a bunch of different ones, but none of them really had, like, the incredible musical mastery that he did. Well, I'll tell you what, the first thing that I thought when I put your CD in the first time, and speaking of uh, uh, the first uh, track, of course, that was the first one that I that I heard when, when, I, when I originally put the CD in, and I was, there were a couple things that struck me right off the bat. The first one, that it was pretty sophisticated. There were some complicated uh, melodies on top of one another that, uh, that, that came out right away. I noticed these incredible Latin rhythms, but also a tremendous amount of energy that, was, that, 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 only, reminded me, that only could remind me of rock and roll. And, and, uh, and then, of course, the, the, the great... Uh, drum rhythms that we that we get from the indigenous uh, uh, folks from lots of different places around the planet. So I was really, uh, I thought it was real cool, but I was really uh, wondering where uh, where that synthesis came from. And obviously, uh, uh, Don is one of those uh, one of those places. Yeah, definitely. Especially for me as as a drummer, I, I, I mean, both me and William have a lot of different. Between the two of us, we've got about. 40 years of playing experience. I've, I've studied with, I mean, just kind of on my own personal journey of, of the drum. Last, uh, oh, about 20, 23 years, uh, studied with a lot of different teachers uh, from different, so, and definitely rock and rolls in there. When Jeff and I met in the jungles, both of us, he mentioned before, played music for a while. We'd given up music for quite a few years. We played in uh, popular touring bands, and uh, we basically just had it with the uh, what was available to us on the airwaves in terms of expressing our frequencies. But when we met up with Don Augustine and started to have these experiences, we started to realize the vital importance that sound plays in the creation of our reality again, and really couldn't help ourselves do anything but come together, write a bunch of songs, and start to put it out there. Well, let's, let, let's, uh, let's play another one. Great.
Quechua exactly for people who aren't familiar with that. Uh, Quechua is an Incan dialect. 
a very, very ancient language, and it's the language that still is uh, spoken in different regions in South America and in Peru, especially in, uh, around the southern Peru, around the Cusco area. Okay. And um, that that particular song, probably one of the one of the earlier songs that we wrote, and it actually is a sort of a honoring or a tribute song to the ayahuasca, to the, the spirit of the plant. Kind of goes through in the lyrics and talks a little bit about the um, just the experience itself a little bit, which of course is always different, <laughs> but. Uh, and, and just kind of um, the, the gifts that the plant has to offer, which are numerous. So, and, and it, you know, as we've been talking about, it, our, our work down there with Don Augustine and with some other plants is a uh, big influence in, in what we do right. up here. And in, in fact, it's one way of us taking the work from down there and applying it here in our own culture, because, you know, as you were asking earlier, where we're from, we're, we're not from there, and um, so part of the work that I feel is is finding building a bridge in a sense. Oh yeah. What we're doing down there, and and bringing something uh, relevant and offering it back to where we're from. In a way that only you can, uh, or or somebody like you. In other in other words, uh, I I understand exactly what you're saying because there are certain individuals that are that are able to cross over boundaries and be able to go and and it's interesting that we mention that because that's what the shaman does as well uh, right. but but to be able to go and balance in one particular culture go in there grab something learn from it take it incorporate it and then bring it back in to another culture maybe your original culture or maybe another one and incorporate it there and 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 uh, and share that in another place is something that uh, that is not that easy to do, and there aren't a lot of people that are able to do things like that. So uh, it's a, it, as I said earlier on, and the reason that I'm spending time actually talking with you guys and not just playing the music is because I did uh, kind of catch on pretty early that there's more uh, than there, there's more to the music. There's quite a bit behind it as well here, and uh, and it's pretty good. And it's coming through in in, in our talk right now too. And you yeah, know, we're not your average bar band. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and I want to ask you a question with regard to that. It's, it seems like uh, when you talk about the music and when you talk about your influences uh, in South America and the, and the people who are, uh, who are mentoring you and that sort of thing, there seems to be some sort of transformative thing that's going on, not only in the music but on a grander scale as well. And I know that uh, among many of the people that I talk to who are... Uh, uh, paying close enough attention uh, to look at these sorts of things and recognize these things, there is sort of a transformative thing happening maybe across the whole planet. And I, and I, and I wonder if, if you guys are feeling that too and if, and, and if, and, and if you're getting that as well from, from, your, from your influences down in the, uh, in, in the, uh, in the Amazon. Yeah, we, um, the, uh, and I'll let William take this in just a sec, but uh, yeah, that's that's pretty important, and that's something I noticed as I was listening to your um, listening to your show that you did a couple weeks ago with Rick Strassman, and just just you in particular talking about. Um, I know you have you have, kind of have some features on your show where you you talk about different things that are happening on the planet, and uh, and even solar activity, and mm -hmm. that's 
yeah, there's something massive going on right now. And uh, so thanks for bringing that up. I'll let William think it from here. Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff. Uh, music is definitely about uh, a planetary process that's underway. I mean, if we look at it, there's just a million things we can bring up, like uh, more species are going extinct than have gone extinct in the sphere for 65 million years. There's uh, ice caps are melting, the glaciers are melting, um, the poles are shifting, even NASA's agreeing mm -hmm. to be shifting mm -hmm. by 2012. Uh, there's just great, vast climatic uh, upheaval. And it seems, at least our work in the jungle has shown us, that creation happens hand in hand with destruction. Mm -hmm. so, for as much as we hear in the media and as much as we uh, just sense in our bodies about what's happening in terms of planetary changes, there's another side to it, and there is definitely an awakening, uh, allowing of consciousness into this world. And Yacha is definitely seeking to be aligned with that. Uh, it's truly a momentous time to be alive. And instead of... Uh, Say, looking at uh, how harrowing these times are, we tend to focus on what an ecstatic celebration is underway. The mother planet heals herself. Uh, you can't really be born of love of the mother planet and uh, not be in absolute love at her healing herself. There's a natural cycle of play, and that death is not opposed to life or consciousness. And we look at it as the greatest and only time to be alive for liberation and awakening. We really, really uh, emphasize that in our mind. Wow. Well, that's uh, it comes through. It comes through for sure. And uh, and quite frankly, I I feel the same way. And that's what I try to get across on my, on my program as well. Is that uh, yeah? We, we, it's great. Great that there's actually someone out in the media that's uh, giving a different side of things. Yeah, um, we don't. You know, we we have this idea of the either or world, but it's really right. not. It's really yeah, that's right. then that's kind of kind of what uh, William was referring to. To touch a little bit more on your question, the work in the in the jungle has definitely um, opened us to that that side of things and that eternal part that that does um, go beyond the the passage of life and death. And, I mean, it's the I mean, it's pretty. I, I would say. Um, while everyone's experience individually is different, and it's a pretty common experience working with the ayahuasca. I mean, the word ayahuasca is a catch-a word, wasca meaning vine and aya meaning death or soul. So it's the vine of death or the mm -hmm. vine of the soul. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you something. There are two things. The music is one of these things that can get beyond the box, can get outside of culture. We, you know, even even in the even in the colloquial language and even in the even even in the bar language people talk about music being sort of the universal language and it doesn't take a genius to realize how you can put a whole bunch of different people into a room with wonderful music and all of them will 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 break down those boundaries and recognize that they're all enjoying the music the second thing that i see where that happens is n nature when we get out into the natural world and into the jungle, into the forest, into the mountains, into the ocean, into the desert. Even the backyard. In the backyard, <laughs> exactly. Roll around in the grass, get our hands in the dirt. And 
both of those things seem to be coming together in your music. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful, uh, because uh, you have the music combined with, with, with the influence of nature. We both have a profound, profound love for uh, Mother Planet. We've had a lot of experiences both in Peru and other uh, situations around the world and, uh, with teachers, by ourselves, whatnot. And uh, I agree with you. Uh, you look at a tree and it really doesn't have, make living and dying into a problem. It's not uh, going to war with its neighbors. Sure, there's uh, cycles of... Uh, life and death, but it's not an identified problem. And we really see, people ask uh, every once in a while, well, when you're in the place of uh, being, of dancing between the polarities, is there passion left? Well, we see more passion than ever as a true passion from coming from that place, something that's just forceful and powerful and sweet and good and pure, mm. that um, it is, it's not really about statements, even about messages. Um, we're not a political band. We just know the beauty of sound creation, hmm. and we seek to do it as much justice as we can in our own lives. Right. For itself. Right. Yeah, in some ways our, our, our music, I mean, you can look at it a lot of different ways, but... Um, I, I sometimes look at it as uh, kind of testament music or uh, that we're just kind of witnesses uh, to the, the beauty of this planet while, you know, while we're here and uh, just kind of saying thank you with our music. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's take another ride in the, in the sonic vehicle. Let's play another song. <laughs> Let's, let's play another song, and then we'll take a few minutes after that and come back and just talk about where, uh, what's next, how people can uh, uh, get a hold of the music, and how people can see you. I mean, I'm thinking, shoot, I'd love to see you guys live, because from what I heard on the CD, that, and, I, and I understand that there's not a whole lot of production, uh, that that's pretty much what you're going to hear live, and, I would, and I'm dying to see you guys perform what I'm hearing on that CD. Sounds good. So okay, let's uh, pick a song and and uh, and then we'll come back and talk about that. Um, see, how about uh, Ark? What number is that? Believe that's number nine. Number nine. Number nine. And what's this called? This one's called Ark. Ark. This is Yachai on KOPN Radio. Or we'll be back in a minute. This is Ark from Sweet Mother Mercy. This is Radio Orbit KOPN 89.5 FM.
Okay, that was uh, the ninth track off of Sweet Mother Mercy. It was called Ark. Where'd that one come from, you guys? Uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Where did that one come from? That's <laughs> uh, probably one of the more, uh, a little more intense rocking ones on the album. It's related to everything we've been talking about. It's also related to kind of the idea about um, the the aspirations of humanity 
getting to the point where it's too much for the planet and uh, human humanity's aspirations are actually impelling us to kind of leave the womb of the mother and go off. <laughs> right, right. Um, so it's that's kind of what the, what the song is about. At the same time, uh, just talking about what what's going, what's happening on the planet right now, and that process that's happened before and probably will happen again. Uh, also, just saying you should or we should all just stand back and watch what's happening. It's a time that's. It's difficult at the same time, as you guys mentioned early on, there's some absolutely wondrous things that are going down as well. And I think it's a... It's, a, it's incredible. It, I mean, it we're, is. we're fortunate that... And there's so so many things, so many um, cultures even um, that point to the time we're living in as a turning turning point, you know. So it's oh, like, yeah. It's not just, uh, it's not just um, uh, the Armageddonists from the Christian right that talked about a big time of change, but it's, there are, regardless of the interpretation, this comes from many, many different uh, uh, texts in the ancient literature and, uh, and, and certainly even now from, from the current, uh, the elders and the, and, and the shamans and the magicians and the wizards of our own day. Right. Not- well, all right, you guys, I think we're, uh, we're getting about to the end of the time here, so let's talk uh, real quick about um, uh, the music and how it's going to be available and when it's going to be available. Uh, let's give out the website one more time. Okay, uh, the website is www.yachaimusic.com, and I'll spell that. It's uh, Y-A-C-H-A-Y-M-U-S-I-C.com, Yachai Music. Okay. And that's probably the best place for um, anyone that wants to... Um, keep in touch with us as far as where we're touring what's going on and also um the album itself will be available on the website um hoping to get it uh get some distribution happening um to actually get the album physically in the stores but it definitely will be immediately available online and also if uh someone wants to order the album directly i can all right, I'll give out an 800 number for that. Absolutely. Uh, it's 1-800-289-6923. And I uh, should really like to mention that uh, partial proceeds from the album do uh, benefit the children in the rainforest of Peru. All right, wonderful. And all the rest of the money goes right back into the music. We're trying to get it accessible to people uh, all over the planet. So that is uh, money well spent and appreciated on our end. All right. Well, it's awesome, you guys, and and I and I, I encourage all my listeners to go check out the website at yachaimusic.com. That's y-a-c-h-a-y music.com. There's uh, a bunch of cool stuff there. You can uh, read a little bit about the guys. You can check out any of the news about them. You can hear some clips from the CD, and then not too uh, not too far in the future, you'll be able to actually purchase it there. And I'm sure uh, um, if I can get the CD player to work here, I'll play the stuff on the air as well, and we'll get you some airplay in the middle of uh, Missouri here, believe it or not. Yeah, we <laughs> definitely appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having us on the show. We really 
really enjoyed it, and uh, if you ever want us back, we'd be happy to well, come back on and, and chat some more. All right. Well, sounds good. And maybe maybe we'll take advantage of uh, uh, of this again, and, and maybe we'll uh, we'll allot a little bit more time, and we can do a whole program because I have a lot of different things to talk about. Uh, yeah, it uh, kind of feels like we're just getting into some things. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said early on, it's one that that, that always happens to me, and I mean it's it, it's it's both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, uh, it's been fantastic, and I really uh, I, I, I say it through my heart. I, I appreciate the music. I love it. I've been jamming it out with my 18-month-old son. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> cool. Uh, my yeah, God. Got, we actually got a letter from uh, someone in the Philippines who said his uh, – do you remember how old his son was? No, I don't. It, it was under 10, but he was saying that his uh, – he was he sent us this thank you letter because um, we, we sent him some music, and he was he was so happy that it was – here was some some real music compared to what he was listening to out there, and uh, and he sent us a letter saying that his son was asking him a couple times a day to hear it. <laughs> well, so, that's that's awesome. That's it's, the kind of stuff we love to hear. Yeah, and it's true. I mean it. I have uh, honestly, my son is 18 months old, and uh, he he's been. Exp- I, I'm I'm sort of a uh, uh, an amateur musician in my own right, but uh, I have a lot of a lot of instruments laying around the house, a guitar and a, a bunch of guitars and a dulcimer and a bunch of harmonicas and and uh, I bought my son a little conga drum about six months ago when he was about a year old uh-huh. and uh, I tell you what man, when I put on your CD he bangs on that thing like he's just out of control, it's hysterical to watch oh, him do cool. it, I have love to bring it. him out when we play yeah, so, okay, alright, that, that's the last thing I want to talk about uh, is is there a tour or will there be and, and, and if, if there is wh- wh- where are you going to go and all that you still there? yep, I'm here okay, it sounded like it out. Um yeah, there, there definitely will be. It's we're still that that there's still a lot in the works at the moment, and uh, we're trying to get some more um, people on board in some different capacities because right now we're pretty much going at it uh, ourselves here. Yeah, and that's understandable. So, are are you playing locally in in uh, in Phoenix? Yeah, and, I mean we we do some shows from time to time. Um, in the Arizona area, not not just in Phoenix, but um, we we definitely want to get out to as many people as possible. I mean, we're willing if we can make it happen. We're willing to travel anywhere, including other countries, to share the music. So. Yeah, we really hope to be uh, doing a nationwide tour by late summer. We have a uh, nationwide college radio campaign starts late spring. So, and uh, in the meantime, for everybody, this has been. Jeff and William from Yachai, and we're going to finish things off with uh, with one more song, and I think we're going to pick a song of my choice this time. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'll tell you Here's a little bit. Is that your son's? <laughs> Actually, it will be the one that Alex likes. So anyway, we'll play that. And uh, um, and again, uh, you guys, thanks again for everything, and we'll be in touch, all right? Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. Sonic blessings to you and your listeners, Mike. All right, and to you guys as well. Oh, no, 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 no,
That was uh, Yachai. I hope you enjoyed that interview. This is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and we're a little bit tight for time, so I'm going to jump right into this uh, interview with Stephen Herod Buner, author of The Lost Language of Plants, among other things. So uh, stick around for that coming up in just a minute here. And uh, I have two books uh, that I'm going to give away tonight, so... Uh, not the first two, let's say the second and the fourth caller that call me, uh, after the interview starts here in the next few minutes, uh, I'll give you each one of these books, uh, The Lost Language of Plants or The Secret Teachings of Plants, and, uh, uh the number here at the station is 573-874-5676, or if you're outside of the area code there, 1-800-895-5676, that's 573-874-5676, 1-800-895-5676. Okay? All right, back in a few. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Good evening and welcome back to Radio Orbit. I'm Mike Hagan, your host as always, and tonight my guest is Stephen Herod Buner. Stephen is the award-winning author of over 10 books on nature, indigenous culture, herbal medicine, and the environment. We'll be talking about lots of different things tonight, but uh, much will center on two of Stephen's most recent books, The Lost Language of Plants and The Secret Teachings of Plants. So without further delay, Stephen Herod Buner, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks a whole lot for being with us uh, and taking some time out of your very busy schedule, I know, to... uh, to spend with us. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem. It's a pleasure and uh, uh, and an honor as well. I've been a fan of your work for many years, and uh, um, uh, recently, as I told you uh, off the air, had a discussion with Dennis uh, McKenna, and he mentioned you need to get a hold of Stephen Buner and interview him, and he sort of gave me the kick in the pants that I needed, and uh, so uh, here we are, and uh, couldn't be more uh, couldn't be more pleased about it. So. That's great. That's wonderful, too, because I was really impressed by Dennis's work early on in my own work, so it's kind of a nice full circle to hear that. Yep, it sure is. All right, well, cool. Um, uh, let's uh, Before we get going here, I'd like to give my, my audience uh, just a little bit of a foundation and uh, a sort of a frame that they can put you inside of before we get going uh, too deeply into this stuff, and maybe we could, you could just sort of give us a little bit of background on yourself, Stephen, and um, where you came from and how you got involved in the uh, human potential movement and uh, uh, and many of the other things that you've been working on now for so many years. Okay, great. You know, I you know I'm 52, so I'm really a child of the 60s and that whole kind of movement then, which offered so many options for people to explore and. But I suppose the thing that really started it out for me is I was extremely close to my great-grandfather who was a physician who began practice in rural Indiana in 1911 and he worked mostly with botanic medicines most of his career and I used to spend a lot of time with him in the forests of Indiana Mm -hmm. and that kind of began a real deep connection for me with both the feelings of of natural landscapes and for a kind of a healing that was not so technologically oriented, but was based more on a deep feeling between people and the, a simpler kind of a medicine structure. Hmm. Yeah, uh, one of the things uh, uh, that I actually wanted to mention that struck me very early on when I read uh, The Lost Language of Plants was you mentioned two words uh, which really struck me, and those two words were wild water. And... Uh, um, that was directly related to your great grandfather. I think maybe you could maybe you could talk about uh, uh, about that relationship and in, in the context of those two words. Yeah, that's great. Um, when I was my family, my mother and father weren't very much fun like a lot of people who were raised in that era. My father was gone all the time. My mother was one of the most acutely boring people I've ever met, and my wife thought I was exaggerating till she met her and dozed off halfway through. So I was really kind of raised in this emotionally empty kind of dynamic. And 
the amazing thing about my great-grandfather is whenever I went to visit my great-grandparents, there was this tremendous um, feeling tone that was there, uh, emotional uh, depth and quite amount, uh, deep amount of good feeling. And so because of the lack of it at home, I was acutely aware of that um, dynamic that was there. And so as we would spend a lot of time in the forest around um, his home in rural Indiana, we would often go to this pond and go fishing, and we would lay there on the banks, and there would be this kind of energy that just came off of his body but I would breathe it in just like I breathed in the air. And there was this amazing substance that I could feel inside of me almost like a food that would come from him. And mm -hmm. one time while we were doing that, laying there and just fishing and not saying very much, he reached over and gathered up some water from the pond and turned to me and said, here, have you ever tasted wild water? And I drank it, and it was really good, and it was the first time that concept of wild water versus domesticated water was really given to me. And, and I realized that as I grew older that, and got used to the taste of domesticated water only, that there was some essential food in wild water in the wildness of nature. Mm. That I needed to be whole and human, just like that thing that came from him that I needed as well. So that that kind of experience stayed with me through life and really was a big part in shaping my path. Wow, incredible. What about how old were you or so back uh, back then? Gee, um, seven, six. Wow. So somewhere just, between five and eight, I would guess. Right, just a real young boy. Right. Yeah, I had, uh, I had a similar experience uh, when I was younger up in Wisconsin, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, not to... Uh, not 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 exactly the same circumstances or whatever, but I did have my own taste of wild water at a at a pretty young age, and uh, and it it never, uh, even though it was sort of lost within me for a long time, and I forgot it was there, uh, it was never really gone. And uh, to this day, when I'm uh, in those environments in a situation where you can still find uh, that, uh, if you're lucky enough to find wild water, boy, I tell you, it tastes. It brings you back immediately. That the 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 return to that place and that time is astounding. How how fast it brings you back there. So yeah, it is. And and you know that kind of eating directly from the world, the eating the wildness of the world, has been something our species has done ever since we emerged in this place. And that it is so rare now, and I think that's one of the points I really make in both of these books we're talking about today, is that as we lose that taste and lose that particular food and eat only really domesticated waters, something essential goes out of our life, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we begin to lose our sense of meaning and direction. And Because there's some essential substance in the wildness of the world that... Um, it's more fulfilling than any of the other food that I've ever had. Mm. Interesting. You, you know, you uh, you make me think back about the wounding that, uh, that that you mentioned that has taken place, and I think that uh, maybe we could talk about that for a minute. But this removal of the wildness, uh, not just water, but uh, but nature in general, from 
individuals and culture alike, both on the microscopic and the macroscopic levels, uh, that there are there's sort of a wounding that has happened. And I think you 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 talk pretty uh, at length about that. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I do that. I I think that as we begin to lose touch with that and begin to see the world in a real reductionistic way as just a mechanical place of interactions with no particular soul in it, there's a deep wounding that occurs that I refer to as the exterior wound and the interior wound. There's these two particular wounds. Now, the thing is that kind of food that I talked about that came from my great-grandfather that I breathed in, uh, almost a soul force, Mm-hmm. that I believe is supposed to be given from one generation to the next, and it's always shared in silence between the man and the boy, between the woman and the girl, and that thing is something we really need to become who we are, but we don't really have a word for it in our culture, and we don't talk about it, even though it's an incredibly important experience. Hmm. I mean, when we walk into a room and see across the room somebody that we love and who loves us and they catch our eye and their face lightens up in that moment there's some substance that passes between the two of us and it's an incredibly important thing and we encounter it with our pets with old landscapes that are undamaged and so it's a very important thing but by defining the world as simply a place of resources and governed by mechanical interactions, that kind of concept of that exchange begins to leave cultural awareness and it becomes kind of almost a furtive or unrecognized thing. And, you know, I've been teaching this for 20-some years now and people still come up to me and share how they've always known that they've done this, but they've kept it kind of secret because... Mm -hmm. They felt this kind of cultural shaming. So in a way, that's really one one of the major wounds, that interior wound that you get where you know that there's this livingness in the world, this soul force that's exchanged that's crucially important to being whole and human. And nevertheless, because it's not talked about or culturally recognized, it becomes very furtive, and people doubt. There's a self-shaming almost mm-hmm. that occurs, and people apologize for doing that. So that's what I refer to as the interior wound. And a, a great example of that is, uh, for instance, that I remember I taught in New York City one time, and there was a, a woman from Jamaica who came, and she was sharing this story, she said, you know, every night, man, my grandmama, she come to me in my dreams, and she say, child, you've got to get your fingers in the dirt. And this woman was very unhappy and very suicidal, and this dream kept happening, and she said, you know, man, when I finally got my fingers in the dirt, I know who I am again. Huh. And such a thing has never happened to me before, and I come today because I think maybe I'm crazy. Amazing. So that shaming is an essential part of the, you know, demystification of the world and reducing it down. And so all of us carry that kind of wound and we have a particular kind of isolation now that is real extreme. And the exterior wound is easier to talk about and point to in a way. It's really the 
over-harvesting of the rainforest and all of the environmental devastation that we run into all of the time. So the exterior wound is more the obvious things that we see out in the world that we see outside of ourselves, but uh, the one that gets probably, which is probably more relevant, but, but harder to see at least individually within ourselves is that interior wound that you mentioned. Yeah, and you know, and that that it's harder to see that says a huge amount about our culture because we're so focused on material surfaces and material forms that we can easily point to, you know, a thousand-year-old rainforest being cut down, but it's very hard to point to a thousand-year-old quality of mind that's been destroyed. So, you know, that thing is important to really understand the repercussions in the internal world that all of this stuff has. And, and in many respects, how we treat the exterior world is only a reflection of how we're treating ourselves and how we've been taught to treat ourselves and each other for a very long time. Right. Great, great, great point. Uh, you know, let me ask you a quick question with regard to that, that sort of exchange of energy or that, uh, that, that life force or that uh, food that you mentioned that you that you received from your great grandfather, and you mentioned that we get it from loved ones and from pets and things like that. Is that you also mentioned that we don't have really a word for it in the in in the West here, um, which is which is a whole another uh, thing that we can touch on here in a minute about language. But uh, is is that something that might be comparable to to chi or or or, uh, or prana or these sort of life force ideas that are that are held in in the East? I think that there's an overlap of um, meaning there, but I, I do think it's distinctly different okay. because uh, the Greeks did have a word for it, and it took me 20 years to find that word, and I found it actually in one of James Hillman's books, um, and the word is aesthesis, and it's the root of our word aesthetic, so you can see how it kind of it's together there, oh. but what it really means is that it's an exchange of soul essence between one thing and another, and it, it literally means to breathe in because the Greeks recognize that when you feel the impact of that soul force for something else, it's from something else, it's accompanied by a gasp or a breathing in. Ah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so people have that when they see the Grand Canyon, they go, oh my, you know, that's beautiful. And so we've had that. But the difference, I think, between prana and chi in this is that the concept of a living intelligence is inherent in the term aesthesis, that the ancient Greeks recognized that everything around them was intelligent and ensouled. I mean, Pythagoras, in one of his great statements, says astonishing. Everything is intelligence. Huh. And they recognized, as many indigenous cultures did, that there's a soul force that's intelligent and aware in the world, and it comes into human beings, and so it's shared. So there's a kind of a, a concept of um, volition and intelligence and a mingling of spirit, really, mm. that I think is a little different than prana and chi. Right, and, and uh, I actually have had a, a profound experience with this recently that you mentioned in the Lost Language of Plants. Uh, my family, uh, my wife and I, we just recently got a couple of puppies um, about eight weeks ago, and they're only about three and a half months old now. And uh, my gosh, I tell you what, uh, when when you come home from work or when you walk in and they see you and uh, that's, 
that look and that feeling that moves between you and that puppy is real. I feel it nearly every day now, uh, and uh, it's quite astounding that there is something really that does move through. And I think uh, you really hit it in your book. You said that the puppy looks at you and says, it's you, it's you, you're back. And uh, I know, it's like everybody, anybody that's had that experience knows how real and substantial it is. Oh. I mean, you literally, in that moment when the puppy looks up and sees you and its whole body begins to wag, there's a force that comes out of the puppy and travels through the air extremely rapidly and you breathe it in and it's the realest thing that there is in that moment and the two of you then go together and touch and there's this bonding but the physical part happens after I mean if you have ever seen somebody with a, a puppy or a dog who doesn't like them then you can tell that exchange doesn't happen and the puppy or the dog tends to respond with suspicion and dislike right. to that person. So to me, in, in many ways, the crux and the essence of my work for the past 30 years has really been that thing itself, that exchange, that substance that happens because when I felt that growing up and throughout my life, it's the most rewarding experience that I had ever had, and that's the thing I wanted every day, 24-7, mm. and I wanted to understand it and live a life that felt that fulfilled. Right. Well, okay, so uh, so why why is that so difficult for us to find? Why do we live in a culture where where our language doesn't even allow us to go places like that uh, without, uh, without, like you say, doing uh, deep, research uh, just to try to find a word uh, to describe what we're talking about here. Um, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the word epistemology and uh, how important epistemologies are. And for, from, for my listeners' sake, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about what an epistemology really is, what it means, and how ours sort of defines uh, this particular uh, place that we're at. Well, piste means to know. So in epistemology, it's a it's the study of ways of knowing that particular philosophical science. And different cultures have different epistemologies. I mean, people from New England are really different than people from the Deep South who are really different than people in the Far West. Sure. And, and if you go to France or Germany or Russia, you find even greater differences. And these are really cultural ways of perceiving reality that you literally can feel the impact of when you are around different groups. And, and of course, with indigenous cultures, it's even more different than in our westernized kind of world. So one of the things I've been really interested in is how cultures, how the shape of cultures affect the reality that people experience and that they live within. And that ties in very closely with what we've been talking about. And, and of course, as I began to explore all of this more deeply, it became obvious to me that indigenous cultures and some of the ancient cultures and some of the eastern cultures were extremely perceptive about this exchange of soul force or the process of a thesis. And so I began looking more deeply into those cultures for traces of its passing and how they described it and worked with it. And, mm -hmm. and it was 
deeply interwoven into indigenous cultures probably more than any other place that I could find. And they just took it as a matter of course. So, you know, it was obvious to them. And and they ended up meeting a culture here in North America that didn't really give it much acknowledgement. So really to each of these cultures, the other was somewhat insane. And in any event, that human beings have known about this. It's just that in the West, um, and even more in the United States, I think, really than any place else, it's been denied. And, you know, and I think about it a lot now, given the political climate now and the changes in the world, it even comes back more to me. But the um, there's been more traces of it in the, the American past in earlier generations in the 19th century than there is now. And I think a lot of it has to do with the strong reductionistic drive in the sciences and that that's really pervaded American culture in many, many ways and affects how we see things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and it's reflected uh, uh, in our language uh, um, most, most obviously. So, well, okay, so with regard to that, then our we would say that our epistemology then that we sort of uh, uh, embrace here is a scientific epistemology, a reductionist uh, epistemology. Would that be a, a fair statement? Yeah, it, I mean, that's a really um, a simplistic kind of, of way of looking at it. And this is an area that I think about a lot. So my thinking and my work on it, deepens and shifts and becomes more complicated and subtle, possibly, as mm -hmm. time goes on. And I think, you know, the, the scientific materialism has really had a huge impact on it. But a lot of times people forget that we in this culture are colonized just like the indigenous cultures have been. We've just been colonized a little bit longer. <laughs> so one of the things that happens in that process is, you know, a removal of the power of the elders and that kind of lineage of wisdom tradition right. from elders to younger people. Right. And in our culture, I don't think it's any accident that the older warehouse because there's a break between the accumulated wisdom of their life and how that gets passed on to younger generations. And the younger generations are warehoused in schools where they're taught a very reductionistic orientation toward life so that that line between elder wisdom teaching and the younger learning about the world is very much broken. There's a, a wall there that is not allowed to be disturbed. And and I tend to think it's, you know, powerful corporations and powerful people have no interest in the kind of stuff I'm talking about here on your show. Mm -hmm. It's not important to them. Power and money is important to them. So when you hook in reductionistic science and technology to that kind of power dynamic in a culture, you get the kind of outcomes that we see here. And and in a way, the United States is a very schizophrenic nation. On the one hand, we have this tremendous belief in transcendent values embodied in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And on the other hand, we have the kind of contempt for those values that is being shown in many ways in the current administration. So 
and we tend to go back and forth between these things as if we can't quite make up our mind. And so I, I think it's a very complicated issue with a huge number of factors, but right, at right. the simplest base, saying having that kind of reductionistic view of a mechanical nature of life really is the beginning of it. You know, James Hillman said a really interesting thing. He said, they had to convince us that the world was dead hmm. so that their autopsy could begin in earnest. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's something that uh, with with biology, for me, I've always been uh, quite interested in the sciences, uh, interestingly enough, but uh, and and to this day, I have I have a, a reasonably healthy respect for science in its true form, what it was originally meant to do, which was to to glorify nature and glorify God through the uh, through the understanding of nature. And uh, but I think that it really got uh, uh, it, it it was turned into a, into some demonic nightmare uh, that that removed spirit and mystery and i and i think for me that that's what it comes down to uh scientifically anymore is that uh i have no problem with investigation and with and with that sort of thing but the removal of mystery and the denial of mystery uh for me is where uh, they really lost uh, lost touch yeah and you know people forget that the early scientists were really considered natural philosophers, not scientists. And what they were doing was they were exploring the nature of the universe and reality and the human place within it. And they didn't really set boundaries on their examination process. Mm -hmm. But somehow later on in that time of that kind of exploration, the reductionists really got a strong control over things. And We've been going more and more firmly down that path ever since. And as if, you know, if you try to bring up any kind of transcendent element to science or the exploration of nature in that way, there's a huge negative knee-jerk reaction wow. against that, which is very much a product of the last maybe 80 years or so. It's not, you know, wasn't that common in science to dismiss everything quite out of hand that way. And and you know it's absurd too because I you know I I talk to professors and scientists all the time you know people that say oh yeah everything's got a chemical basis to life and I go hey, you don't really believe that and they go yes I do and I go, no you don't believe that and they go yes I do and I said well are you married and they go yeah and I said well if you're married you don't believe that because if you treated your wife that way you'd be divorced <laughs> so they have this way this kind of intellectual perspective about the nature of things. But they don't really live that because they nobody would treat children or spouses that way and, mm -hmm. and expect to get anywhere with it. Right, right, right. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, that that uh, on the one hand they can look at it in one way, but uh, but not see the writing right on their own wall at home or something. Right. So so you know, in Goethe, the great German poet, um, who was also a scientist, which most people don't know now and who I really respect um, has worked tremendously. I mean, he basically said you have to look for the truth in the everyday around you, not in, you know, very remote, controlled, scientific, isolated instances in a laboratory. And so when you see the fundamentals that really govern human life, which are deeply composed of these kinds of feeling and exchange of 
control force between people that care about each other, there's definitely something going on there that has to be taken into account. It's the essence of what it means for us to be human beings. You know, uh, the, the other thing is that the, the irony is that in, in the last 70, 80, 80 years, like you mentioned, that, that, that the reductionist sort of mechanistic view has really uh, dug its heels in, so to speak. During that same, same time period, uh, discoveries from the sciences themselves have pretty much shot themselves in the foot. In other words, uh, you know, there's also, not only is there a denial of mystery, but there's a denial of things like Bell non-locality and uh, the Heisenberg's uh, uncertainty principle, this idea of, of global incompleteness theory. All of these things are, are point to the same thing, uh, but, but they won't sort of accept the implications of their own discoveries in many cases, it seems. Well, I mean, you know, and that kind of process has been going on in science for a long time. I mean, the reductionists kind of won, and then they said, this is the way it is. And then a lot of the younger generation who started from that perspective started finding out all of these amazing things about nature and then published their results, and then there was a huge uproar about it, and there still is. I mean, you know, people know, and I talk about this in Secret Teachings, uh, people it's absolutely clear that the heart is not a pump. Okay, it's not. That came out of 19th century steam engine perspectives right. about physiology, and it's not accurate. Nevertheless, 90% of the physicians and physiologists and professors still teach and work with the heart as if it's a passive pump whose job is to pump the blood around the body. The fact that it's a nonlinear biological oscillator that has an extremely subtle range of functions that are quite amazing, including the fact that it has memory because of the amount of neural cells that are in right, it, right. and on and on and on, that is met with tremendous, not just skepticism, but extreme upset when that kind of... Uh, information is shared as if it's some sort of new age flake, you know, but the <laughs> the research data is extremely clear on it and you see that happening everywhere and Heisenberg, you know, his uncertainty principle that occurred, and I forget exactly the year, but I'm sort of remembering back in the 20s right. or 30s right. approximately and, you know, and basically saying that you know, the observer changes what is being observed, and that still hasn't been incorporated into science. Yeah, that's exactly right, Stephen. That's exactly right, and it's really uh, it's a mind blower. What you mentioned about the heart is something else. Uh, you know, there was a there was a gentleman who did some tremendous work in the uh, in the late 1800s. His name was Rudolf Steiner, and I'm not sure if you're you're familiar with him, but he oh sure oh, yeah. Sure. I think Steiner said uh, back in 1860 or 1870, something like that, he said the most astounding uh, discovery that will not be recognized, and he wouldn't even put a time frame on it, he said that will be refused to be recognized, is that the human heart is much more than just a pump. Right, and he, you know, some of his work was truly amazing about that, and it really, you know, um, anticipated the work of, Rollin McCrady and other people at the HeartMath Institute. Sure, out there in Boulder Creek. A lot of the, yeah, a lot of the stuff that's happening now. So, 
and he had been hugely influenced by Goethe's work as well. And mm. you know, most people are more aware of Steiner as the founder of what is the, the anthroposophical movement. And um, but yeah, his work and that statement was sort of fairly remarkably concise and accurate. Mm -hmm. All right, so it appears that we have this epistemological error then. Uh, it appears that, uh, at least in our particular culture, that there is something that's happened, and we can blame it on science, we can, uh, we can blame it on reductionism or materialism or whatever, but regardless, there's an error, and, the, and it, it, it's apparent all around us in, in the external wound uh, that you mentioned earlier. So maybe we could do a quick compare and contrast between uh, the epistemology of uh, sort of the scientific epistemology that we're talking about here and then maybe that of a non-industrial, uh, a more natural uh, way of life, maybe an indigenous epistemology, something like that. Well, what's really intriguing is every ancient and indigenous culture make very similar assertions about the nature of reality and you know, they all use kind of different words for it in different terminologies, but in general, they pretty much all say at the center of everything is spirit, hmm. and that matter is created out of spirit, and all material forms have a spark of that um, original fire within it, and, and as such, possess a logos, or a kind of intelligent soul inside of it and because human beings are made the same way that we can all communicate with each other that this kind of intelligent soul communication between human beings and the rest of nature is not only possible it's an average regular everyday part of life that is supposed to be there so that really knowledge then about nature and about the self and about the world comes from this kind of exchange of information from the livingness of the world to the human being. And, and Stephen, and one of the real interesting things that I encountered a long time ago was this amazing assertion that human beings are the offspring of the plants. Hmm. And I love that kind of image. You know, scientists have an orientation about it where they say, Oh, the plants, the green plants, changed the atmosphere of the earth, which allowed the emergence of an oxygen-breathing species such as ourselves. Mm -hmm. But when you put it like that, it's very different in substance than when you say that um, we are the offspring of the plants. There's a kind of a familial bond that's inherent in that latter way of talking as if they're our parents and we are their children, and that also implies a kind of a responsibility from them toward us. And indeed, in the indigenous and ancient cultures, that is very well articulated and present, so that when we're in need and when we need help, we can go to them and ask for it. And, and the indigenous cultures say, yes, you know, all of the plants, have agreed to help human beings when they have an illness and each one will provide a medicine for some illness a human being has. So that's very different in substance and in feeling tone hmm. than this kind of reductionistic, um, supposedly value-free articulation of, you know, mechanical scientists. And so there's a kind of a livingness that's much more interesting in this 
more indigenous perspective. And what's amazing is their plant knowledge of the use of medicinal plants for illness is extremely developed. And and all of these people that were asked, the medicine people when they were asked, they said, where did you get the knowledge of these plant medicines? Without, you know, exception, they would say, oh, the plant told me, or it came in a dream, or it came in a vision. They would never say, oh, no, it was a trial and error. We just, like, tried different plants until we found one that worked mm-hmm. with us. They, they never said that. And as a matter of fact, they insisted that was not how it happened. Well, I'll tell you what. I have talked to very many ethnobotanists, uh, ethnopharmacologists, uh, uh, experts on shamanism and indigenous species, a lot of different people, including yourself. And one of the common threads uh, that everybody who has experienced literal personal experience in these areas has told me the exact same thing that you did, Stephen, that uh, when asked, how do you come across this knowledge? How was this knowledge imparted to you? Uh, the answer is simply the plants. We receive the knowledge directly from them. So, Wayne, on what, and see, Gerda developed a whole body of work about this and was quite insistent that this was what true science was, not the reductionistic dissection of the world. And that's what's really intriguing to me because this consistency of, of description that has gone through all cultures and times basically says and shows that there's this other way of gathering information about the world and our place in it than the one that is advocated by reductionism. And so that's what's really got meat on its bones mm-hmm. for me. And the thing that's really intriguing to me is what is that world like and how do you learn how to move in it and how do you use it so that it kind of it doesn't lose its transcendent um, excitement but it begins to be demystified in a sense because it's kind of like plumbing there's certain (laughs) things you do and you learn and you go through this process but it's not you know you don't sit there in this kind of unthinking reverie and just sort of let the gods do what they're going to do sort of thing you train yourself in a certain series of of techniques and ways of perceiving and ways of doing and and it's an absolutely fascinating thing and it, and this kind of exploration for me belongs to what i would call experiential anthropology hmm. You know, the anthropologists for a long time have been saying there's something else going on here that's really intriguing, and they'll describe it and talk about it. But what really is more interesting to me is entering that world for oneself. Of course, you get accused of going native if you do that, but (laughs) you're not going to find it out any other way. And so, you know, Thor Heyerdahl's decision to build the Contiki and to build the raw and to sail in these old crafts was kind of the beginning of experiential anthropology. And there's really something to be said for this kind of personal exploration to find out really what's there. Right. I think uh, I, I agree in general. KOPN 89.5 FM Columbia really uh, can start to form our worldview and then move out from there. I, uh, you, you made a wonderful point earlier about how the things that are supposed to really matter, the things that the things that we're told the world is made out of, you know, atoms and uh, electrons and charge and spin and angular velocity and momentum and these sorts of things, are so abstract and so far uh, from 
the the day-to-day experience of the average individual that to base a worldview upon those things is in my opinion ludicrous the 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 opposite way as you mentioned to go out live in the world have the experiences based upon your own